What's up, everybody? Welcome to Mixtapes. I'm your host, Eric Stanglin. And today with me is a good friend of mine. He's an award-winning producer, engineer, musician, professor, and I know him as Tommy Bacon because there's less than six degrees of separation from him and everybody in the world. Welcome to the show, Mr. Tom Gordon. How are you doing today, my friend? Hello, Mr. Lettuce. Nice to see you, sir. Eric Lettuce in the house, folks. Absolutely, man. Thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, I always like asking this question first because I always get a different answer, and it's it's something I think is really important for all of us musicians. When did you first get bit by the music bug? Right. First bit by the music bug, uh, probably when my brother had a, a, abandoned playing drums and had a snare drum that kind of just rotted away in the garage when I was middle school, uh, late elementary school. And I, 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 the thing would fall into pieces and I hit it and it looked, it sounded like that drum in the theme to 2001, a space odyssey. Okay. And I'm like, what's that? You know, that boom, 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 boom. I'm like, Hmm. And I started hitting it more. I'm like, that's really cool. I had no idea what a timpani was. <laughs> I had no right. idea if this was a snare drum or anything. I was just like, man, I love that sound. So the, my, my gateway drug into percussion was that because that, that was the first music thing I had done for fun. Okay. I had taken piano lessons when I was seven years old and I had no excuse not to practice because I was in love with my piano teacher, Mona Sanchez, who was Miss Reno. She was stunning. <laughs> so oh, I was like, wow. I loved going to piano lessons. Yeah. You don't and, want to, uh, you don't want to like fail out of piano, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But still, I just didn't, that instrument didn't speak to me that way. And I took some, uh, so after like a year and a half, kind of stopped with that, uh, and then took some guitar in in my elementary school. But man, hitting that drum and thinking I was doing the timpani part in two thousand one, a space odyssey. I was like, oh, okay, here and we go. It, this, is, now, this is sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Was the whole entire drum set there? Nope, just a snare drum. It was just a pearl snare, snare drum that was missing the bottom head, so there were no snares on it. Even it was a tom tom. And how old were you, do you think? Oh, I, I was uh, nine or 10, I think. So you had a concept of what a drum set was per se. Yeah, I, 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 I it was before my, before I, I sat down at a drum set, I was, uh, um, so this would probably be like 77, 78, and I okay. didn't get a drum set until 79. Okay. Uh, but my brother was playing in a band, um, briefly called aftershock playing bass and their their drummer had their drum set at my house in 79 summer of 79 and i had a keen ear for music already i was a huge cheap trick fan okay and cheap trick live at budokan had been oh, yeah. released that year so i had i was just devouring live at budokan and there, there was that drum solo at the beginning of ain't that a shame so i i, I asked my my brother's drummer can i sit down and, and play your drums and they're like Okay, kid, you're bothering right, me. Right, right. The little and brother. So the, the kid brother, brother right. sits down at the drum set, and I started doing the boom, boom, boom. It wasn't nailed, but it was it. And they all looked at me like, where did you learn to do that? I said, well, I've been listening to this Cheap Trick Live album. Wow. So you you basically just, was that the first time you played a kit? Like yeah. ever? Wow. Yeah. And I, I wow. kind of fumbled my way through Ain't That a Shame. That's amazing, because I can tell you right now, the first time I ever played a guitar, it didn't go like that, and the first <laughs> time I ever touched drums didn't go like that either. So, so you, but 
for, for the listeners to know, your dad was involved with music, right? And and you know he was you know involved with the Harris Corporation and in the showroom. How much do you think that influenced you musically? So a lot in two ways. Okay. First way as a performer, the piano. We had a showroom piano at our house. There was a warehouse sale at Harris, and my dad bought one of the Harris Baldwin pianos. Wow. So uh, I, have, I have, and I have it here at the studio now. I have a piano that was played by Ray Charles and Jerry Lee Lewis that was in That's our amazing. living room. Amazing. Jerry Lee Lewis broke eight keys on our piano. And my parents uh, rented it to El Dorado and saw El- Jerry Lee Lewis break eight keys on the piano. And they said, yeah, we're going to stop renting the piano. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that was a house piano. And that's where, I, you know, my mom fiddled with piano. My dad, not, not as much, but my dad played drums in high school, marching band is in, in Hawthorne back in the fifties. The uh, so there was a little bit of percussion there, but you know, there was this entertainment vibe because dad was the light guy for the brat pack he was doing lights for sammy davis jr and dean martin and um uh rich little and tony Orlando and just whoever played harris was was uh you know dad was there and he had friends in the house band uh jerry Gennaro gave me my first drum lesson he was the drummer for the john carlton orchestra and so many of these amazing musicians came to our area to play in these house bands because it was steady work in the yeah. 60s and 70s. You didn't have to go on the road. You had a you could you could start a family, you could buy a house, and you could play nightly in the showroom bands. So and I've said this for years about Reno. We have so much talent in our area because a lot of these people moved here in the 60s and 70s to get these great steady gigs. And either A, they're still here, or B, they've had very talented offspring. Right. So we, we, we have an insane amount of talent here in Reno. Thanks to that as uh, plus now people moving here independently of that. So that was kind of the, the music end with the piano that I was around with. And then early uh, encouragement from Jerry Gennario. Uh, I, 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 I got a lot of musical support there, but then the technical support came there as well. Dad uh, had a reel to reel tape machine that had come out of uh, Harris that I was fascinated with. And I was like, wow, this is tape. How is music getting stuck onto this reel-to-reel tape machine? And I'd take all my Kiss records, you know, Kiss Alive, four sides. Well, that's annoying. I got to flip the record over. If I record it on a reel-to-reel at the slowest speed, I can listen to the entire album without having to flip the the record over. Now. Were you seriously doing that? Yeah. How old were you? Yeah, in elementary school. That's insane, dude. <laughs> middle school, middle school. That's insane. Yeah. And you yeah, thought, so and I you was like, that yourself, get, like you yeah. thought, wow. Yeah, and it was like, wow. wow, I don't have to flip the record over. I can just, but it sounded like ass on a string because it was the slowest speed, which is right. the worst uh, fidelity. Sure. But even a reel to reel deck at the slowest speed is the same speed as a cassette, which is the best it ever got. <laughs> so, right. right. So I, it, it was, and it was thicker tape. So there's more real estate. So yeah, I was kind of making mixtapes or, or, or compilation reel-to-reel tapes, so I didn't have to flip albums over. Wow, that, and that at that young age, I mean, yeah. that's insane. Um, any influence? Because um, you know, you said your brother. Any influence from your mom? Music? Mom. So musically, mom. Mom and dad were both theater kids. 
Okay. There were, you know, lots of theater background. Dad was a theater student at UNR. Mom was more the behind the scenes production. She was a seamstress and set maker and costumer where she grew up uh, outside of Chicago, this uh, suburb of Chicago called Naperville. So she was the, the, the costume designer for Sacred Procopius College. And she was like fearless. If she needed costumes for a show, she actually would call the Marines and say, we, or the, the Navy said, we need some Navy outfits for Honey Bun. And the, the, the Navy base in San Diego would send her actual uniforms. Wow. And, and she got us an advanced screening of South Pacific on a, at, for Warner Brothers because they asked for it because they wanted to design the costumes for a stage show. That's I, I was like, I, I couldn't believe the stuff she pulled off. Yeah. And she, she actually has probably met more impressive people than I have because she worked for World Book Encyclopedia as a, uh, for a little while when wow. she was in the 50s. She met Sir Edmund Hillary, the guy who first scaled Mount Everest. Wow. Because World Book Encyclopedia financed his journey and he and in exchange for the story. Right. So he had to come back to Chicago and give them the scoop to put in the World Book Encyclopedia. And he brought the Sherpa with him. And mom was the one writing his check and sending wow. it off to him. And that's the Sherpa is there grinning. Yeah. And they asked the Sherpa, you know, so what's it like in the night? You know, he's been in the Himalayas his whole life and comes to comes to, to Chicago and sees a city for the first time. And they asked him, so what do you think of what do you think of? the United States. And he's just grinning. It's like the women smell so good. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and then like not long after that, mom has a temp gig at, at a hospital and the queen of England comes to the, her first U S visit and mom dresses for this. Cause they're going to be dry. The motorcade's driving by the hospital and no one else really seems to care that she did it. But the mom's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to go out and see this motorcade. Yeah. Well, there was a big event that night downtown. She went outside and barely anyone there. Here comes the motorcade with Queen Elizabeth and, 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 and Henry. And mom gets eye contact with Queen Elizabeth because there's no one else there. Wow. And they like wave each other and smile at each other. Insane. And mom's just like, wow, I just had a moment with the Queen of England. Yeah. And I was like, so we've had these moments in my family that just puts us in front of these amazing people. Right. And then just to put a bow on this in 76, when there was the, the, the uh, bicentennial. Yeah. Reader's digest did a contest to write a, 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 a story about when you were uh, most proud to be an American. Okay. And the prize was a trip to uh, a family for four to Disneyland. Okay. And you know, in 76, I was, uh, eight da david was 12 so th that would be perfect so mom wrote this story about this moment with queen elizabeth and wrote a poem didn't win unfortunately she lost to a lady who had submitted a picture of herself dancing as a seven-year-old on president eisenhower's shoes I'm like <laughs> okay yeah sorry right. mom but that's pretty rad it's, right, uh, right we'll let that one slide but this this poem has been floating around our family the whole time and uh about seven or eight years ago Someone from England suggested, you know, you should send that to the Queen of England. She probably really liked that. You're like, you can do that. You can send a letter to the Queen of England. Right, right. And right. turns out you can. And you can, there's a way you word it. And you can find the instructions on the, on the internet. 
chances are if if they reply it will be a lady in waiting that yeah. will uh will do it but we did it when mom you know said here's my memories from meeting you know this moment you know in in 1953 yeah. wrote this poem about it submitted it to contest and mom sent it off right before she left the the my the old house i grew up in and moved into the independent living after dad passed away and uh like not long after new year's mom goes to the mail letter from freaking buckingham palace wow and <laughs> wow written on christmas eve okay handwritten from the lady in waiting from her majesty her majesty just read your letter and your wonderful poem mrs gordon and we're so happy that you sent this to us and she has such great memories of that trip to chicago and really appreciate that took the effort to do it and i'm like this is a, a story that spanned 40 years yeah this mom connection with the queen that paid off yeah. so I, I kind of was surrounded by these. And Bill Dad was like always talking about Bill Cosby and 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 Sammy Davis Jr. I went to a screening of Cannonball Run uh, because every performer at the end of um, their runs at Harris, it was a one or two week engagement. As a thank you, the the cool ones would buy them out a movie at the Granada Theater on First oh, Street before the they tore it down. Yep, yep. Host bar, snacks and alcohol. And so it'd be after the last show, you'd meet at one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning at the theater and get to watch a movie. And, and dad took me once and I got to watch Cannonball Run with Sammy Davis Jr. when I was 13. With Sammy Davis. Yeah. And, and his, his bodyguard, I love this, his bodyguard was this dude named Jolly, who was like 350 pounds, who was in the movie Live and Let Die, the James Bond movie. Uh-huh. He was the, 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 the bad guy named Whisper that blew up. And uh, Jolly was was um, his bodyguard, and Big Boy had this giant box of popcorn, a cardboard box full of popcorn, waiting for 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 us to go. And then in, and realizes that Sammy isn't there yet, and we're like, "Oh, wow, good job with uh, Jolly. Go go find your your boss, please." Yeah. <laughs> and uh, right. <laughs> so in comes this little tiny man with a you know black suit and white scarf in a dimly lit theater, and everyone's applauding, and he stands right in front of me and i'm sitting there standing there with my dad and i was back when i was six four and uh <laughs> the uh jolly's a big guy and then sammy was teeny and sammy looks at my dad and goes dale is this one of yours <laughs> and uh he's like yeah this is my this is my baby tom and he's like what do you feed this kid <laughs> that's amazing dude so i was surrounded by these these celebrities and and names that so when when i started working with these kinds of acts or interacting with these kinds of people when I was in the USC marching band, I wasn't as intimidated. Right. Uh, I, I was, uh, I, 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 one of the first gigs I did at USC, Gene Autry was there. Wow. And I'm like, Gene Autry. And the gal, uh, Daria Smith, who was, I, I was in the bass drum section with me, saw I was getting a little weirded out. I was like, freaking Gene Autry. And she's like, yeah, he's just a person, Tom. You know, he puts his pants on one leg at a time. I'm like, but it's Gene Autry. She's like, calm down, Tom. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and I go, well, why are you so calm? And she grew up next to Bob Hope. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> like, okay. There you go. That was the wake up call I needed. Wow. And and since then, I've been pretty cool. Well, and, and that helps in your in your industry, which we're going to get to later for sure. Yeah. But the first thing I want to ask you about was you get the drum set. So obviously, you're playing in a band. You have to have played in bands in high school. Um, 
talk to our listeners about what it was like playing in a band in high school um, and, you know, what were some of your great memories and experiences from that? So um, the, the, high, the, the, the band situation started actually in middle school. Okay. Uh, yeah. And so I got my first drum set the Christmas of uh, 79 having that that incident with, with the the cheap trick thing they were like right. wow he kind of gets it uh and i started in concert band at clayton middle school i okay. was a band nerd so i was learning how to read uh and and become a better player learning some mallet instruments but i i was uh you know not not completely at home with it i wasn't the strongest reader but i had confidence in my playing so I, I, I kind of became section leaders quicker than sooner, uh, than, sooner than later. And uh, I helped uh, Clayton get their first drum set my, oh, wow. my eighth grade year. I helped them uh, select. And I remember that, that um, and I, I, had, I didn't know how to tune drums. And I thought, wow, this is a piece of crap. <laughs> <laughs> I even asked Sammy Davis Jr. drummer that it was right after we got it, that, that, that screening of Cannonball Run was there. And I asked him how to tune the drums uh and he he gave me some pointers but uh it wasn't until my eighth grade talent show that i finally had a band experience where there was a local punk rocker named mike ward who has been a fixture at recycled records for decades who was reno's you know first punk rocker really who i'm not sure who recommended the idea but we decided to do uh, Sex Pistols, God Save the Queen. Okay. For our middle school talent show at, at Clayton, and we we enlisted our friends uh, Brad Cluck to play keyboards and Eric Duggar to play guitar, and neither Brad or Eric were really deep in their instruments yet, so it was you know kind of the bare minimum version of the song outlining da 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 not even full chords. Right, right. Um, Mike had the lyrics cold. You know, he was a you know, Sid, uh, a, a Johnny Rotten protege. And I could not figure out the solo of the song on guitar to save my life. I just kind of figured out the bass notes <laughs> and showed it to Eric and Eric kind of went with it from there and got, got better than what I ever did. So I did a drum solo instead. I did like a big Neil Pert drum solo in the middle of God Save the Queen. It's <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> and people were like, whoa, wow. Yeah, he can play. And it was that, that gig that's, got me some 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 nods when i went into high school okay they're like no this is tom gordon kid he just stupid drums all in the middle of god save the queen uh and we only did three three performances for our talent show but i actually my dad videotaped it uh in my garage my neighbors the cattells videotaped it so there's footage somewhere of us doing this back and then I've, I've been threatening mike love or mike mike ward with a a, a dub up as soon as i can digitize oh it. god that would be amazing <laughs> that would be to, yeah it was priceless uh so then in high school we, i opened mcqueen i was in the first four-year class at mcqueen high school okay and was a band nerd 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 right. nerd 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 and uh amongst the band nerds i did meet some um amazing musicians outside of that realm and i started playing with uh, this phenomenal keyboard player named Jeff Duncan, okay. who was a, like a, a Keith Emerson of Emerson. I was a prog rock kid. I went from Kiss and Cheap Trick and moved on to Kansas and Rush, right. especially Rush. And um, so uh, I would go to his 
his house every Saturday morning uh, with, uh, and I ended up leaving my drums there and working without stuff in his basement. And we had a group called Mirror Image for uh, um, a period of time. And that was uh, another friend, Rudy Evenson and um, some other folks doing we did one show where we were, we played a, a talent show, tried to do an original song. And then we did a concert after I graduated, like a, a lunchtime show. Okay. Where we actually tried to do like Abacab from Genesis and Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed and oh, wow. um, these covers. And then trying to incorporate like the, uh, a drum feature because we were, it was two drummers on one of it. It's like, so it was, we always try to bite off way more than we could chew. Right. Um, and, and finally this one talent show I, uh, Jeff and I just did a duet called, we wrote this nine minute prog rock composition called Not Our Decision. And I pulled out <laughs> all the bells and whistles on my kit. Right. And it was, you know, Keith Emerson was sweating. It was, it, it was, <laughs> it was and, and Carl Palmer was laughing accusingly at me. But the, uh, uh, yeah, it was, that was the, it was like, okay, complex prog rock. Yeah, I, I, I have fun playing drums. But none of those groups actually got to record, sadly. Uh, so my first recording experience was with a, a different band with two older guys. Uh, there was a, a, a guy named Phil uh, Winders, who was this 26-year-old Jeff Beck wannabe. Okay. But he was a pastor at a local church. Hmm. And he knew a cat named Wayne Langley, who was this talented songwriter, uh, kind of a bright voice. And... Um, so they were both 26 and they somehow knew a friend of mine named Mike Blodgett, who was a, a local, you know, Devo wannabe kid. And he ended up playing bass. So it was like two 17 year olds and two 26 year olds. Oh, wow. And that group was called Ultimate Dilemma. Okay. And we recorded uh, when I was 14 at the Star Sound Audio studio in the basement of Star Sound Audio underneath Star Sound of Bizarre Guitar with the marvelous Mark Ishikawa as our engineer. And I was very excited. You know, I was 14. I'm about to do my first recording session in a professional studio. And I was buying insulators for my cymbals. So I could saw away, but they were too long. So I, I asked if they had razor blades. So I was sawing a razor uh, with a razor blade down and I, I moved my hand so I wouldn't get the, the, the razor blade in my middle finger. Right. And... Once I got through the cymbal insulator, it popped through and landed in my pinky. Oh, whoa. So I sliced with a razor blade in my pinky right before my first recording session ever. I go to the hospital. I get nine stitches. They numb it up with Novocaine. They wrap it up and I go back and do the gig. Show must with go my on. My finger like this, playing the whole time. <laughs> like tea, like you're drinking tea, like you're English. Yeah, yeah, like you're drinking tea. <laughs> so uh, that's when I learned I didn't play to a click very well and <laughs> oh the irony <laughs> exactly i'm like what's this metronome what I, I mean we never practiced to it no one suggested it i'm like oh yeah oh wow that was a rude awakening and uh we ended up recording a year later at axe tracks which is the room we're in now it used to be called axe tracks with a, a slightly different lineup and that's the first time i worked with the owner of the studio dr davis yeah. Uh, of Davis Chiropractic, who's been is the longest running audio studio owner in the state of Nevada. He was wow. our engineer in that, and um, that one we ended up uh, also doing uh, to a click. But I was a little more prepared for it, right? And I missed 
brand, uh, the brand new Lawler Event Center. I just opened. This is 85. I'm 15. Uh, or no, it was 80. Was, anyway, I, I think I was 15 at the time, junior year of high school. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, man, I really want to go see Huey Lewis in the news at, this, at, at, at uh, Lawler Event Center. And was, the session just kept going and going. I'm like, I'm not going to go to see Huey Lewis. <laughs> and before I know it's like two or three in the morning. Right, and we're doing this thing, which is common for recording sessions. For those Absolutely. of you who've not done sessions, this is very common. When you're 15, you don't know these things. Right, and your parents don't know these things. Right, so they probably think you're out in the town. They're losing phone. their freaking minds. <laughs> and no once I saw the time, I called them. I'm like, "Hey, hi, it's Tom. I'm sorry, I the time got away." And and they're yeah, my parents didn't lose their cool with me very often, but that time <laughs> they that time lost their cool. Right. Get right. out home. I'm like, okay, we're almost done. Bye. <laughs> yeah. So um, so recording those two times is where I kind of got the recording bug. Uh, and I really didn't have a regular band that gigged, though. It's weird. It never. And when I went to USC, I went on a a, a percussion scholarship. Okay to go to USC, got a half ride to go to USC on a percussion scholarship, but I didn't want to play in a symphony my whole life. I just didn't speak to me. I didn't want, you know, right. playing four mallets and stuff like that. And I had, again, the best teacher in the world, Dale Anderson was the guy who played all the xylophone stuff on the Warner Brothers cartoons, all okay. the, the Bugs Bunny stuff. Oh yeah. That, that was Dale. Wow. And he was my teacher and he ruled. And even that didn't inspire me enough to pursue that professionally. So you just uh, so knew. I knew it wasn't right. Yeah. And my sophomore year, they announced this recording arts degree at USC. So I was the 13th person to enroll into the recording arts program at USC. That's amazing. Yeah. Brand new SSL studio with Studer. And um uh I I wasn't really I didn't have my drums down there. I, I after after that. I was like, yeah, I, I'm I'm gonna go into this recording thing more until my last two years i befriended a few friends in the recording arts program who were players one of which was from new jersey a guy named matt angus who okay. uh, um, later created his own record label called black potato records and his own music festival the black potato music festival right right and um so he had a group called angus and they had lost their drummer and a mutual friend of ours who was playing bass carter humphrey who's now uh, an engineer who's worked with like Rod Stewart and teaches at um, recording uh, programs in Los Angeles. He um, he was the bass player and he said, hey, we need a drummer. So I, I started playing with uh, Angus and uh, then we actually lost our bass, uh, uh, bass player Carter. And I knew this guy named Ray Silva who um, uh, was from Chicago and uh, was a, a, a pretty good darn good bass player was in the recording arts program with us as well and uh we became um a group that mostly did police covers <laughs> and, oh, and nice, uh, nice and stevie ray vaughn and stuff for private events and we were going to go out and play because the shortest member well at a, at a certain point matthew um was doing his own kind of americana stuff but ray the guitar player scott and i were all like the police rush heads yeah. And and we got together a lot on our own to just jam as uh, our own little thing. Um, <laughs> and it is the best band name I've ever had, I will say, because uh, uh, Ray worked at the Griffith Park Observatory in Los Angeles and it had read this report about the, the first Scottish 
doctor who had observed the behavior of molecules under a microscope. Okay. He described their behavior as cavorting like we beasties. So we became Angus and the cavertin we beasties. <laughs> and then right off the top. with Angus, we were just the cavertin we beasties. And the shortest member of the band was 6'4". Oh, wow. <laughs> so we were like, perfect. It's a tiny wee beasties who are 6'4 or taller. And uh, we had talked about trying to do some gigs towards the end of my school, school time at at, U, at USC, but then I ended up moving back here and the band never actually did it. And I'm like, man, I, I, I never really got the band experience going out and gigging until I came back to Reno. Right. After working at Granny's house, uh, the, the only band I had that kind of thing with was Eat It Joe's. Right. Which was uh, uh, an astonishing group. America, uh, 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 they call, we called it Eclectic Americana. Uh, uh, David Newman vocals, keyboards, John Bankhead on guitar, and the incomparable Joe McKenna on bass. And uh, that was a gigging band. We, we did a lot of shows around town. We actually did a conference out in um, Minneapolis and uh, we were hoping to gig more, but um, uh, largely due to my schedule as a recording engineer, as I became head engineer at Granny's house, I just couldn't, didn't have the time commitment. Right, anymore. right, which is, which is tough because you know, one of the questions I, I was curious about was when did the recording start taking over and did you end up, so you had to, your commitment had to be there for four years at USC with the, with the half Actually five years. Scholarship. I ended up going five years. And it was all, and you had to have, you had to keep that scholarship going. So you were playing in the marching band because you're kind of in a famous scene in a certain movie, aren't you? <laughs> True. Uh, the USC marching band, the Trojan marching band, make love with the, or practice safe sex, make love with the Trojan, fight on. And uh, uh, it's Hollywood's band, uh, guilt by uh, association and proximity. So the uh, in the USC band, A, it's the only marching band in, in, in the world with a, a, a top 10 hit. Tusk, right? They are the band who performed with Fleetwood Mac on Tusk. Yeah. And I actually did the 10th anniversary of Tusk with Mick Fleetwood. Wow. Which was weird he came and did a halftime show with us and he was wearing the rumors costume <laughs> and he they just released tango in the night and i'd seen them live a few months before when nick had mick had done that drum solo with the body triggers which was brand new technology back then where he just played a solo playing on himself right and so that was really impressive and i was like totally captivated by how he did that so he comes and does this halftime show with us. He's there with his attorney. He just gotten clean. Um, and he get, had copies of the Greatest Hits album on vinyl for all of us, which was cool. Wow. And we all kind of got on the line before the halftime show to meet him. And I was marching bass drum. And in fact, then I had a beard. That For a short period of time, I had a beard. You never okay. saw me with a beard like that. Um, but so Mick and I were kind of separated at birth <laughs> when I had a beard, tall, two tall, lanky drummers. I actually had a PE coach at McQueen who used to call me Mick because he, he, I reminded him of Mick Fleetwood even when sure. I was in high school. Uh, but I don't have the big googly eyes Mick has. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but so it was my turn to meet him and I had my bass drum on ready to do a halftime show. And Mick comes, oh, hello. And I'm like, so, pleasure meeting you, Mr. Fleetwood. Uh, I saw the Tango Night Tour uh, a few months ago. Uh, Love the show. Great, great, great. Really curious about those drum body triggers you had. Who makes those? Are those 
designed by Simmons or Dynacord, which were the only two manufacturers back then. Yeah. He grabbed my freaking bass drum and started fondling it and said, a friend of mine designed those to enhance the sensation of touch. We'll be trying them out in heaven next week. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> Don't touch me. <laughs> uh, and then um, I, wow. the, I, I did three Super Bowl half, uh, two Super Bowl half times with the USC band. 22 and 23. I did three Rose Bowls with that band. I was in, I did a, 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 a World Series wow. uh, national anthem uh, with that band. Uh, I was uh, on Win, Lose, or Draw. I was on LA Law. Uh, we had a, a, a shot in LA Law. But the big one that uh, he was, uh, that Eric was alluding to was the movie The Naked Gun. That's right. Uh, yeah, with Leslie Nielsen. And it was, <laughs> directed by the zucker brothers which were the same directors who did airplane right so if you've seen airplane you know the style of naked gun which was originally a tv series and then they made a a, a, t a film of and it starred leslie nielsen priscilla presley and ricardo montalban host of uh the the the, the, the star of fantasy island of, right uh, of the time and con and con from wrath of con <laughs> so yeah. you don't get cooler than ricardo montalban right right he, he was the bad guy, and there was a scene shot uh, at a baseball game uh, where there was this plot to kill the queen. The queen again. Oh, my God. It just See? comes full circle. Uh, and Reggie Jackson ends up as the assassin to kill the queen of England. I knew he was versatile, but I didn't know he was that versatile. So random, right? right? <laughs> exactly. So there's this big confrontation where Ricardo Montalban has Priscilla Pezzi with a you know, Uzi at her head. At the side of this baseball stadium, and uh, Leslie Nielsen's character Frank Drebin has a tranquilizer dart in his watch, and he's like, "Oh yeah!" and shoots his tranquilizer dart in Ricardo Montalban's neck. That makes him drop the gun, and he's just supposed to fall asleep for like twenty minutes. Except he instead fell off the side of the baseball stadium, <laughs> several stories to the parking lot. Right. So th this is where we come in. It was shot at Cal State Northridge's parking lot, ironically. Oh, wow. Yeah, this wasn't at Angel Stadium. That's what I thought. shot all the other stuff at Angel Stadium, but our part was shot at Cal State Northridge. And um, what you see in the movie is, first is uh, a bus that drives over Ricardo Montalban, then uh, a steamroller, and then a marching band. And we're the marching band. It's the USC marching band. I'm the only bass drummer. They show me twice. But what you hear is Ohio State playing Louie Louie. They really? didn't have they, they didn't have audio, clean audio of us doing our fight song. So they somehow cleared Louie Louie from Ohio State, which wow. is annoying as hell. Uh, but it is what it is. And the, the shot is an aerial view. It's supposed to be as if you're looking down from the top of this, this ballpark with um, Leslie Nielsen and, and George Kennedy was the other actor, the other cop that was looking down. And as soon as the band goes over, George Kennedy starts crying and, and he's like, it's so terrible. It's so terrible. My mom went the same way. <laughs> you're like, yeah, okay, good. So what many people don't know is what was shot that didn't get put in the film. That, was, that scene was supposed to be twice as long. And the first thing they shot was this white convertible Cadillac with red lining with this guy with long white hair being chased by a cop car. 
That was the first thing that drove over Ricardo Montalban, which I think it was a sub a subplot that got cut out of the film altogether. So they cut him out at the end. Okay. Then Frank Drebin, uh, Leslie Nielsen's character, had a puke green sedan that earlier in the film got rear-ended and all the uh, airbags exploded and the, the, the rear trunk was on fire that drove away by itself. Right. It comes back. And they had a radio-controlled version of that car drive over. Oh, wow. The Ricardo Montalban. And it was a dummy. It was a, he, he wasn't there, but it was a dummy. Yeah. Then the bus, then the steamroller, then us. Then the most surreal thing I've ever experienced. <laughs> Behind us were two dump trucks full of bowling balls. Hundreds of bowling balls. Like real bowling balls? And a sound I cannot recreate. The sound of several hundred bowling balls being dumped out of two dump trucks. Yeah. That would then roll over Ricardo Montalban. And uh, that was weird. And they had it shot. You know, They had the angle so it would, it would go straight across. But it was actually a slight downhill, so they could collect at the bottom of the of the of the, um, the parking lot. And I, I got to walk by Video Village and see part of the playback, and I heard them talking about that. Oh, we can't see what they are; they're too far away. The shot was too far up. It was just black dots. You couldn't tell they were bowling balls. Oh wow! But damn it, that didn't stop them from doing a second take. Oh my <laughs> so, god! Really? They put all the bowling balls back? Oh wow! Those poor production assistants had to, they, they took the, the dump trucks down to the end of the parking lot and like a dozen PAs th- threw them back into the, into the truck. So like we could do a second take. Yeah, and if they're real bowling balls, I mean, you're looking at anywhere between six to eight pounds. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. That was a lot of effort for a shot that didn't get used. That it, That's insane. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Hollywood. And we flew to Australia the next day. That was that 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 gig helped us pay to take a small group to play World Expo '88 in Brisbane, Australia. Really? Yeah. So thank you, the producers of Naked Gun. You are awesome. Well, yeah, and think about how much how much you got to experience being in that USC band. I mean, that's crazy. All those stories, and I don't think a lot of us think about those things about how much that band, how famous that band really is. It really is a famous band. So you come you come back to. Reno, why do you come back to Reno? Why don't you stay in LA? Ah, excellent, excellent question. So the reason why I came back to Reno uh, was a, a chance meeting my last year at USC. This Ray Silva gentleman I, I mentioned before, and I started a chapter of the Audio Engineering Society at USC. And as part of the AES student chapter, we were able to organize tours of, uh, of facilities so we toured a, a record cutting plant and we toured um, a couple of private studios, but we got to tour AM Records, which was now the Henson Studios. And it was originally Charlie Chaplin's studio. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And AM Records, if you don't know who the, 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 the name starts, Herb Albert is the A, okay. the, the, the Tijuana Brass. And then Albert Mann is the, uh, the, uh, is the, the second, is the M of AM. So, you know, this is a, studio complex run by someone who is a working musician right and has that mentality it's a pretty phenomenal complex and when we were touring there springsteen had just finished recording in the a room and sting had just finished recording soul cages in the b room wow all right so a couple lightweights yeah just then yeah so the head engineer was a guy 
at the time was a guy named uh, Shelly Yakis. Actually, Bob Morangel was that engineer then, but Shelly Yakis had recently gone freelance after being the head engineer there. And Shelly was there that day and um, working on something. And he said, oh, here's the, his replacement was giving us the tour and saying, here's some, some recording students from USC. And Shelly told us, <clears throat> and Shelly was the one who had done the, 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 the sting session uh, for Soul Cages. He's like, well, for those of you who are not from here, you might want to go back from where you came from and be a big fish in a small pond rather than trying to be a small fish in a big pond. Because you got a lot of competition down here in Los Angeles. And I knew about this studio in Reno called Granny's House. So my spring break of my last year at USC, I reached out to Granny's House to see if I could get a tour or, or maybe get an interview. And <laughs> I, I, uh, I, then they were nice enough to, 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 to meet me. And I met with Bjorn Thorsrud, who ended up being my boss, who was uh, the, the, the second engineer at the time underneath um, Don Evans, who uh, uh, was left right before I, I started. And I learned a very important lesson at that meeting that with recording equipment, it's the model numbers that matter. So I walked in saying, yeah, I'm, a, I'm finishing USC. I'll be done very soon. We have a studio that looks just like this. Got a big SSL console. And they're like, oh, really? Which SSL do you have? It's like, well, it's, it looks just like this. And it's like, well, is it a 4,000 or a 6,000? I'm didn't like, know it. you didn't know, right? No clue. It was like, yeah. well, the busing structure is very different between the two, but they look the same. I'm like, oh, God. I, I, maybe fourth. I, I don't Well, But the tape machine is identical. The Studer, it's identical. I'm telling you, it's the same tape machine. Like, oh, the 8800 Mark III. That's fantastic. That's a great machine. Is, oh, wait, is it the Mark II or the Mark III? Hmm. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, the bias card's different between the two and the three. I'm like, do you think they were just kind of like, well, the, this you? was the interview. Yeah. Okay. This was the interview. And okay. so there was a, a, a very expensive remote, a, a reverb from Lexicon that had its own remote control uh, that they call a lark, uh, a white remote control that would sit on the console. And, and they had one of the larks sitting there on the, on the, the console and it looked just like the lark we had at sc i'm like well we have that same reverb unit i'm like oh the lexicon great well that's the remote control for either the 480 or the 224 which one do you have i'm like oh man damn it so the second i i, I got back to la i sat down and memorized all the model numbers smart and that's something i teach all my students now is, yeah very smart you got you got to learn the, the numbers uh so apparently i made a good enough impression that when I got back to Reno uh, after I graduated, it wasn't long after a, a short run uh, working at Pepperdine as an AV tech, I um, I got asked to come help at Granny's house because they were doing this project and Don was gone and Bjorn was working 80 hour weeks by himself and he needed help. Wow. And uh, it turns out the project was Millie Vanilli. We were doing the Millie Vanilli comeback album, known better as the Robin Fab album. And my first 10 months at Granny's house was the Robin Fab album. And with that, I that that one project alone, I got enough credits to join Naris if I wanted to. Interesting. So uh yeah, that's that's where the Granny's gig came in. Interesting. And 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 what a crazy first gig to have, right? You know, and Don correct me if i'm wrong on this but don was billy joel's first guitar player wasn't he 
first or second exactly right. so if you ever hear the entertainer the song the entertainer by billy joel that's done on acoustic wow and he was with billy for a few years and did some touring with him very cool very cool so it's the street side the streetlight serenade album that's done so and don also produced um some other groups uh he was the engineer at granny's house who did ronnie james dio lock up the wolves and and told the wet sprocket fear and um um what were some of the acts before me david lee roth steve i uh, uh so yeah don's great and ironically zillions of years later he's moved to new jersey for black potato the black potato music festival our sound man got sick and we needed a replacement and i said you guys should try don evans and we convinced don to come up from uh down near uh, philly to to clinton and don became our front of house guy we just wow. until the, the festival finished. A small world man small small world hey i'm a huge david Lee roth fan especially steve Vai. like really i'm a huge steve Vai yeah, fan. Yeah. um what were they doing do you a radio show they did a radio interview when they were on tour they stopped here and did a whole like so they didn't record anything for an album here they were just both here for a radio interview um but it was christmas time and there was an assistant engineer this is all before me so i've only heard this from bjorn and this kid brad harker who was the uh, assistant brad was out decorating the trees in front of granny's house with christmas lights and apparently steve and david were feeling a little feeling a little homesick so they went out and helped help brad decorate the studio with christmas lights <laughs> How cool is that? Yeah, it's great. There's a story for the grandkids, right? Yeah. Oh, uh, but Don was the engineer on the Judas Priest trial. Really? Yeah. With Eddie See, Kramer. Ladies and gentlemen, I mean, you're you're listening to the show, obviously, right now. I mean, you're going to get a ton of stories. Like, like I said in the earlier in the show, when I said less than six degrees of separation, I wasn't lying. Um, can you give the listeners an idea of? who's come through that studio because there's some very famous acts that have come through that studio some you've mentioned but there's some really big acts also that you haven't mentioned so Correct. can you tell us some it's more true. uh some more big acts that have come through granny's house yeah so when it was granny's house there were three iterations of of, of of name and ownership when it was granny's house um so running james dio tell the wet sprocket um, White Snake uh, recorded the Slip of the Tongue album there. Um, Gerald Albright, or no, uh, Gerald Albright, uh, Citizen Kane, uh, Vanessa Williams. Um, uh, You're forgetting one big one, but I don't else. know if it was this, if it was the second iteration of Granny's House. Boys to Men, right? Well, I was getting to the second one, yeah. Oh, they were the second one. Okay, okay. Yeah. So the last project, well, the second to last project of the of the original iteration was Millie Vanilli. And then the last one was the Nelson twins. Oh, wow. The two twin sons of Nicky, Ricky Nelson. And, 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 and we were discussing Beavis and Butthead earlier. Greatest, one of the greatest things ever was watching Beavis and Butthead with the Nelson twins when their video came on <laughs> love and affection video oh yeah i remember that yeah yeah and 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 beavis and butthead are are like and because they were huge fans we were we every night we'd take a break to watch red and stimpy okay and beavis and butthead with the nelson twins and um and laugh laughing 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 all of a sudden the twins are on the show and we're like oh god and these guys 
kind of had short fuses. <laughs> no disrespect to Matthew and Gunner, but yeah, we were like, oh, this could go very bad. This yeah. could go very bad. And the first thing they said, <clears throat> these chicks look like guys. <laughs> we're like, oh no. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. These are Ozzy's kids, and they're the grandsons uh, you know, of Ozzy and Harriet. Right? Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's like, oh, so this wall of ice goes in the in the kitchen, going, "Don't look at the twins! Don't look at the twins! Don't look at the twins!" Right. And they finish it, and it's just bone silent. And we're like, "Is this going to be a lawsuit?" <laughs> it's go, oh, right. God! And all of a sudden, they both broke out into hysterics at the same time. We're like. <gasps> Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it all was good. All good. Thank you, Matthew and Gunner, for not going ballistic on that one. Uh, so, but we had an IRS takeover of the studio. Okay. Uh, in uh, August of 92. Uh, and uh, ownership changed. And at that point, the, the, the people who uh, owned uh, Bulb Man were the primary investors who, who owned the majority of the, the business took over. And it became just grannies at that point. They dropped okay. the house. And that was a pretty amazing time too. So uh, finished Boys and Man. I mean, uh, Nelson very soon after was Boys and Man, like you said. Right. Collective Soul. Right. Uh, um, Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard uh, and Johnny Rodriguez and Freddie Powers did a project for uh, Special Olympics with us there. Um, we had um, uh, Herman's Hermits. <laughs> oh, wow. People. Uh, and we did some voiceover work with like Peter Graves did uh, a voiceover for uh, Florida Orange Juice, an industrial read. We had Cliff Robertson, uh, who, you know, former you know, Academy Award winning actor and former um, uh, president of the Screen Actors Guild uh, was doing a, 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 tele, a phone in update of this thing called the Earthwinds Hilton, which was a hot air balloon that Hilton was uh, financing that was going to fly around the world. And there were daily updates on how the mission was going. And, and Cliff would drive in from Minden where he was flying gliders to do these recordings every, every day. Oh, wow. And then Richard Crenna, you know, the, 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 the actor who was in like Rambo and stuff did a commercial for Bud Light uh, <laughs> at our, at wow, Granny's house. So random, right? Yeah. And then uh, a, a personal favorite, I know this is a favorite of yours, Eric, uh, Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden did uh, an album called Balls to Picasso. We did a song called Shoot All the Clowns at Granny's house with his producer, Shay Baby. Uh, so we, we had him for a few days. Uh, Michael Martin Murphy. Uh, um, uh, Ozzy, his majesty. How can I forget his majesty? I, I, I was going to say, Ozzie. there's, there's yeah. Ozzy stories. And that was the yeah, yeah. So, wild years, right? Yeah, yes, exactly. And so uh, we we were actually installing a new console in our A room and refurbishing our B room. We actually weren't a functional studio when Ozzy came. Ozzy had just finished the No More Tours tour after the No More Tears album. Right. And he was contractually obligated with Sony to do one more record. Oh, so much for No More Tours, No More Tears. You know, it was like, it was supposed to be the end of it. So they decided to write another album and they were just gonna kind of like shelve it and release it later as the Lost Ozzy tapes was kind okay. of the original okay. concept. So they came here to write a record. And we were, Bjorn and I were like busy wiring in the studios. We helped them with the setup and a lot of stuff, but they were in Studio A and Scott Bergstrom from Star Sound Audio came up and set up a monitor rig in Studio A with a DAP machine and just captured everything. So actually Scott Bergstrom was the head engineer, technically, even though it was just a rehearsal thing. 
but they were here for two weeks to write this record. And for the first week, the bass player was Mike Inez from Alice in Chains. Right. And uh, he ended up getting a gig with Alice in Chains and had to leave. And then I can't remember James's, uh, James's um, last name, but the, the, the bass player of White Lion. Oh, uh, Lomenzo, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So was Mike Inez. Absolute sweetheart. Randy Castillo on drums. Okay. Zach Wild on guitar. And uh, then His Majesty. Uh, and and uh, so His Majesty was like, um, uh, his, uh, Sharon had just bought the house that they ended up shooting the show in. Okay. And she was there decorating. Okay. <laughs> and his oldest daughter had just started college. So the one that was not in the show. So we, we'd get these phone calls. You know, the, there was an intercom system. At, at Granny's house, and like Ozzy, you know your 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 daughter's your wife's on the phone, and you're like, "Hello, <laughs> sweetheart, you did what? Oh, that's quite exciting. Yeah, I, I'm sure it looks great in the living room. Yeah, right. How much, how much you need? Right, that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, lovely to see you. Bye. <laughs> and then you know, Dottie, da, Ozzy, your daughter's on the phone. <laughs> Hello, peaches. Peaches. You did what? Did you tell your mother? And that's, that's quite exciting. How much you need? Well, I'll send it right away. Love you too. But, but <laughs> I walk off. You know, it was it was it was awesome. And he again clean. The only he was like drinking Perrier and Pepsi like it was going to be outlawed tomorrow. And 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 the only time you saw him was on his way to the bathroom with his fly halfway down. And you're oh, like, wow. lay off <laughs> the the freaking Pepsi, dude. It's right. okay. Right. And. Uh, uh, just so many things. Uh, I, I got it. I, I know I, I usually don't like talking. And I really only have, I don't have many people I can talk smack about. Everyone I've worked with has usually been pretty fantastically awesome. But I, right. I did not have the best experience with Zach Wild. And um, uh, I, 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 I won't bore you too much with why. But yeah, he, he pulled some stuff while he was here that I'm, I'm really not thrilled about. But I've heard he's really mellowed out over the years and he's actually become a really nice guy so i'm thrilled to hear that well yeah i mean it's too bad you didn't know me back then too because i gotta talk some jersey sense into him yeah <laughs> right say paisan right. what are you doing <laughs> exactly. leave the tall one alone forget about yeah, it exactly so one thing that i don't know if you even if you know the story eric but uh i almost prevented uh osmosis or the, the live album the no more tears live album oh live uh live and loud that's it. I almost shelled that record by, by accident. Really? Yeah, yeah. I that was uh, that almost didn't come out because of me. Wow. Because we were wiring the studio, and they sent a reference cassette for Ozzy to listen to because they just mixed it in Los Angeles somewhere, and they wanted him to sign off on it. So they said, so Zach comes down, is like, man, we need a cassette deck to play this on, and I'm like, nothing's wired. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, give me a few minutes. Let me see if I can get up, get this ghetto ghetto blaster into the console so you can listen on speakers. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. Just give me a minute down in Studio B. And uh, so I, I, I plug the headphone jack into the patch bay. I'm trying to make it work. It's not sounding great. I hit play. I'm like trying to dial it in. And Zach's like, Ozzy, it's ready. And I'm like, no, no, I, it's not, it's not ready. And then they both come in, and I'm like, 
you know, just like nervously smiling, going, I'm really not, no, play it's fine, fine, just play it. Right. And they play it, and it does not sound good. And right. I was just like, oh, I can't fucking stand live albums. Tell them to fuck off. I hate it. I'm like, <laughs> whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. I wasn't ready, you guys. I got to, I, you, I, I, we don't have a functional cassette deck. Give me a few minutes to dial this in. Yeah. All right, all right. And they off, they, off they went. So I'm, I'm like, I get a better connection or whatever. I don't know what I did different, but it was a little better. And it's this, it, but I, I foolishly left the door open and Zach heard the sound and right, zip back right. down. He's like, Ozzy, it's ready. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, dude, I'm not, <laughs> no. And Ozzy comes in and I'm like, guys, I'm really not ready. No, it's fine. Just hit play. So I hit play. It sounds better. Right. But it's right. still not 100%. Ozzy's like, can't fucking stand live albums. Tell them to fuck off. I hate it. I'm like, okay, hold on, guys. Let me come get you when I'm ready. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. I don't think this is the way it's supposed to sound. So um, I uh, finally get it in like five minutes. I get, okay, this is the way it's supposed to sound. I go get him. I bring him down. I play as a now listen. And I was like, oh, it sounds pretty good. Tell them all right. That's amazing. I'm like, oh, if that album got trashed because of me not being able to wire up a cassette deck, can you imagine big, the that shit was a big record? Me? That was a big live record too. I remember. That I own that. I own that record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard forty seconds of it before it was released. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> um, you talk about you know. Ozzy and Zach coming back into the studio and you, and you talk about, you know, getting the calls in the intercom. I think one of the reasons why the studio is so cool and the, the listeners probably don't know this is, you know, it's an actual house. So like you stayed in the studio, right? And you recorded and, and I think that was the charm of the studio, correct? Yeah, it was meant to be a bed and breakfast recording studio. So eight bedrooms, two studios. Yeah. I absolutely mean, right. Absolutely and, brilliant. And getting away from like, because you know back then Reno was a, a much smaller town, so it was like almost getting away from the noise of L.A. You know, the, New York, the big studios, and going someplace where you can really like work Focus on your on. art, yeah. not distracted, that's, right? That's, yeah, get away from the distractions. Right. So the the third to the, your point to your point the third phase of of that studio is when the Roth sold um, the studio to Tim Tucker, and it became Sierra Sonics Recording Mansion. Right. And uh, one of the biggest acts we had there at Sierra Sonics was Dr. Dre. And we ended up doing first some sessions for King T. And then he came and back several times to do um, Chronic 2001. And um, Dre had a studio in his house. He worked at Skip Sailors all the time, but there was too many distractions. So Dre could bring his entourage of 16 people to Reno, put them in either a peppermint or the nugget, when he wanted to stay elsewhere but work all crazy hours where all these other artists would actually stay there and yeah. work crazy hours but the the same thing was true of all of them it's like i can focus here yeah and it was it, we got some name acts but it didn't happen enough to keep the doors open long term and if a lot of people had speculated if we had put granny's house in tahoe it would have done better interesting yeah yeah, absolutely interesting. It's, you know, the hard thing about it too was the record industry was starting to change. And yeah. People didn't realize it either. So it was kind of like right. that calm before the storm because not, you know, you, you had Napster right around the corner. 
Yeah, that's bad. Very bad. <laughs> <laughs> and you have, uh, you know, one of the things I think one of the biggest mistakes the record industry ever did was give people the uh, the power to burn CDs. To really that be honest. was an issue. Yeah, that to really be issue. honest with you, I mean, as much as it's you know it's great to be able to to have done that back in the day, you know, it became a lot more easy to pirate stuff. Well, and I I, I would say though. It, how was it any easier than making illegal cassette copies? Well, because you used WinMX and you used Napster, and it allowed you to take anything you wanted to to put it on there. Back in the old days, you had to have the physical product to do that. So, but if I guess the difference is you didn't have the physical product. True, you didn't have a record, you didn't have the physical disc that you were copying to a cassette. But if this happened, where the cassettes could uh, connect to the computer, you could make the real-time transfer. It was easier. That was it because it was faster. You right. could just download the file and burn it. Yeah. So yeah, that that's where it was more convenient. Right? Yeah, and that and that changed a lot because that studio was great. I mean, you had White Snake in there doing more material, and then um, they came back under Sierra Sonics. Yeah. Right. Right. Smart. Yeah, and I, I thought it was great. I got to record there. I did a couple albums there, and and one of the questions that I wanted to ask. Um, which I thought was really cool was the studio was affordable. So where a lot of us local artists got to record, you know, independent artists, and we got to experience a recording, like basically recording in the studio, the, the size was mind blowing. So it was like, oh my God, we're like legitimately recording a record in a real studio. I remember calling my mom going, you can't, I mean, you got to see the studio. It's absolutely amazing. So it was a world class room and it was built. It absolutely was. So here's my question to you. I want to know, did you feel the same way as an engineer in that studio? I absolutely. The amount of pride I had about being an engineer at that studio was enormous, 100%. And it was weird when LA engineers would come to town and like tour the studio and play reference stuff in in there. They'd go, man, there's something weird about this control room in the low end. And I'm like, you don't know who you're talking about. I'm, I'm, this room's perfect. <laughs> and, right. uh, because I was always giving them the 10 cent tour. I was their second engineer. And it wasn't until I started working in other rooms, I heard what they were talking about. A room that size is a very tricky room to design acoustically. And uh, two major rooms were designed in Reno the same year with the same philosophy. There was an acoustician named Chips Davis who created this philosophy called Live End, Dead End. Uh, room design. So half the room's absorptive, like an acoustic sponge, and the other half is reflective with all uh, reverberation going around. And both Granny's House and Nightingale Concert Hall at the University of Nevada, Reno, were designed as live end, dead end spaces. And by 88, that whole theory had been disproved by the Audio Engineering Society. <laughs> oh, wow. Oops. Whoops. I hate it when that happens. Do over. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So we spent a very long time reverse engineering some of the treatments in Studio A at Granny's house to kind of make the live part deader and the dead part liver to kind of even out the space. Right. Uh, something that we still grapple with all the time at, 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 at uh, Nightingale. Because since I teach there now, I teach classical recording. I was just discussing tonight that or in the last week about that uh, at the hall chips davis you stupid bastard um so um uh 
it, it was weird, a, a giant room like that. And, you know, when Dre was there, he could get all 16 of his posse in the control room. Yeah. That's how big that control room enormous was. Enormous control room. And um, the only studio I've seen that was bigger than that was uh, uh, Bad Animals in Seattle, the Heart Studio. Oh, beautiful that, studio. That, be huge. That's the only... Oh, and Peter Gabriel's Real World. When I worked there, that, that room's bigger. But that's it. All the other studios are like this, where they're smaller and more compact. And you can control where the sound's being traveling a lot easier yeah. in a smaller space like this. And the low end is what gets out of control first. So, uh, yeah, you couldn't tell me when I worked there, there was anything wrong with that room. And that was a, a kind of a lump in the throat when I sat and started working in other rooms going, oh, shit. They have, they're, that's, they're, mm, you could crap. tell. Yeah, yeah. That, that had so, been hard to come back to that. Yeah, and I did go back and did freelance work with Uncut and and um, oh um um oh that guy in Tahoe, great great musician. I uh, did a EP with him there. Um, oh heck, I'm so and and um, oh well, I can't. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> God, it's so good too. Um, uh, it'll come to me. Um, and 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 um. Uh, Fletch was his drummer. Um, um, LJ was his bass player. Um, oh, was it Joe? No. Not Joe from, uh, I forget what his name is. Not oh, Darren Talbot, is it? Ring my freaking neck. You'll, you'll figure it out at two in the morning. Yeah, yeah. You call me, so we'll do good. another Zoom. But yeah, it was, knowing that and going back to Granny's, I was going, oh, okay, this is what they were hearing. But then I, I knew what to listen for and work around it. It was no problem. Right. But it, if you're not if you're not expecting it and you're, you walk out going, what the hell happened? Then oh that's that's a problem yeah it makes complete um, sense so, but, but but sierra sonics we also had um creedence clearwater uh revisited which was the last game one of the last kids i did there where they had this was credence without john fogarty uh because john really didn't want to do the credence catalog anymore he wanted to do his solo stuff and doug and Stu, uh doug clifford and Stu cook were the original bass player drummer said hey we we're more than happy to play it and there's a fan base who wants to hear it so they they formed just to do it for like six months and end up being a 25 year gig for them. Wow. And they, they recorded live in Canada on D88s, which was an eight track digital recorder that was a competitor to ADATS. And uh, they booked our studio to um, have me mix uh, this live album that was recorded in Canada. And of all the platinum records I've worked on, that's the one that went platinum that I mixed. Awesome. And it's a double CD. And I learned something very interesting about the RIAA platinum classifications that a double record on CD has to be 90 minutes, which doesn't make sense to me because you're gonna only hold 80 minutes on one CD, no, 79 minutes and 40 some odd. Oh, seconds. and he was even smaller than that back in the day. Right. So one CD, yeah, there were 74 for a while. Right. And so, 78 is kind of 79 and a half. I was like, well, anything over that should be considered a double disc. But according to the IRIA, the Recording Industry Association of America, uh, no, 90 minutes to be to, to be considered a, a double record. And so in order for a double record to go gold, which is half a million, you only have to sell 250 units, 250,000 exactly. units, because there's yeah. two per. Yeah. So it went gold, and I'm like, hey, cool when, when do we get our plaques and steve Polakos, their manager was like i got bad news <laughs> i'm like what he's like we didn't qualify i'm like why not and he's like well 
Yeah, it's a 90 minute requirement for a double record and our album's 89 minutes and 42 seconds. Get out of here. Are you I'm 18 like, second difference? 18 wow. seconds short and we didn't qualify. And you're That's like, insane. and I, it was a live album. I could have padded out 18 seconds of audience. I was going to say they, easily. Can't, they can't round up. They couldn't round up. <laughs> wow. So when it finally sold 500,000, it went legitimately went gold as a double record. And when it finally went platinum, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> there's, I think that's, yeah, that's the platinum. Wow. That's, uh, you know, that, that's actually a million copies of the double album, motherfuckers. <laughs> and then next to that's the chronic, right? Yeah. So we got collective soul on top, uh, chronic below that, uh, Beach Boys greatest hits album I worked on. The Beach Boys didn't work on at Granny's house. That was me afterwards. Uh, Boys and Men in the middle uh credence down at the bottom the, the 45 up there is dr davis's wow he has a platinum record because he was uh he owned the studio and helped on the recording session for endless love with Lionel richie and diana ross in 1960 or not 1980 the studio I was gonna say 1960 this studio was in downtown reno before it was extracts it was called sunwood and Diana had a, a week engagement at Harris and couldn't leave town and had to finish this vocal. So they flew Lionel Richie up with the tapes and they recorded wow. it. And if, for those of you who are in Reno, um, the West Street Market, that's where that studio was. So where the Greek restaurant was, that's where the vocal booth was, where Lionel Richie and Diana Ross cut Endless Love. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so another uh, plaque from... Uh, the 50th anniversary of Good Vibrations from the Beach Boys, um, my Emmy. We did a show called the Reno Sessions that I was I helped uh, create the original pilot for uh, the pilot episodes that we were here that we got it. I got an Emmy for, and then this is an interesting thing called um, a Visionary Award from uh, 3M Tape. If an album that you recorded was uh, recorded on uh, your uh, their tape that went uh, platinum. They gave you one of these awards. So I oh, won a cool. award for being an engineer on Boys to Men too. How cool! Yeah. Um, so yeah, I call this the Wall of Shame, and it's it's cool. <laughs> it's awesome though, man. Yeah, it's history, you know. And it's funny you talk about Boys to Men. I remember how those guys were actually playing basketball against people over at the local athletic center, which I thought was so absolutely cool. right. Absolutely Amazing. right. They were at. They got busted though. Uh, they went. They foolishly went to the mall. They went to Park Lane Mall before it was torn down. They were at Marabelli's, and they were they were thinking they could be you know incognito in 1994 in Reno at a record store. Yeah, good luck with that. What are you thinking? And apparently, uh, someone recognized them, and they asked, "What are you doing in Reno?" not knowing how small Reno is, they said, well, we're doing some incognito recording. And they're like, oh, you're at Granny's house. <laughs> so that night, we were just smothered with people trying to get Oh, so everybody showed up to Granny's, right? Everyone oh, showed up. Wow. News spread quickly. Yeah, as, as does in Reno. And that's before yeah. cell phones or when you could afford cell phones. <laughs> Jesus. That's exactly. Insane, that's pretty awesome. Man. That's yeah. insane. So you end up, you end up working there for a while. You worked on a lot of local artists also, which is uh, a yes. claim to fame for, for you, you know, getting, you know, local artists, great sounding records, you know, on top of doing, you know, working with White Snake and other people. Um, and then you end up going to the studio you're at now. So right. how 
big of a how big of a step was that for you? Were you were you nervous? Um, take us through that. Yeah. So um, uh, Bjorn left Granny's house uh, in '96, um, so and I became head engineer. So I was head engineer from '96 to '98 during that period of time with Dre and and Credence and the return. Uh, not White Snake. Uh, I was I was the. It's funny. Before I answer your question, why? So I'm now a staff engineer for White Snake. I work with them two days a week, and I've just produced the 30th anniversary box set of the Restless Heart album that I was their assistant engineer on, 25th anniversary uh, at Sierra Sonics, and I was I was the the tea boy. I was I was making 21 glasses of carrot juice a day for White Snake and Entourage. Wow, uh, they were on a big juicing kick then. And now here I am co-producing the 20th anniversary, 20th that, anniversary box set. That's so surreal, man. It's like, you know, go, you go from carrot juice to like producing this box set. I mean, that's, yeah. That's I, and I, I see DC twice a week helping him with stuff. It's, it's very surreal. Um, D, DC so, being David Coverdale for people that don't know. <laughs> thank not, you, the, Eric. not the comic books. Okay. Continue. <laughs> and it was funny. There was years I didn't work with him. And I, he, but he lives in Reno. He's been in our, uh, Northern Nevada for since 88 when he bought a house in Lake Tahoe. And I would run into him and his, his marvelous wife, Cindy, uh, around town at, you know, usually Tower Records when it was open. That's when I'd run in, or Soundwave CDs when that was around. And I, he's very British, very prop, very proper, very much a British uh, gentleman. And one of my favorite uh, memories of him is running into him at Christmas time at Soundwave CDs. And I shaved for this for you, Eric. That's how much. I, uh, but the uh, you know, people are used to seeing me with five o'clock shadow or or worse, uh, right. because I just work you know eighty to ninety hour weeks, and I have had uh, for well, I'm, September fifteenth, two weeks from tomorrow, will be my thirtieth anniversary from starting a granny shop. Wow, thirty years of doing this. So, a lot of my friends are used to seeing me with the, the stubble, and I was there. I had been working like crazy doing my 80, 90 hour weeks. And uh, David says, Thomas, Thomas darling, how are you, what are you, how are you doing? And I'm like, oh, DC, great to see you. Uh, Mr. Coverdale, great to see you. And he's like, what's this, Thomas? What's this all about? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, David. I didn't, and do not call him Dave, by the way. It's David Coverdale. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't expect to see you, David. I, I didn't shave. And he's like, well, I didn't expect to see you today. I, I shaved. <laughs> great <laughs> like, thanks <laughs> so uh so to, now to answer your question i i was i was hoping i could get a go at being a freelancer uh, after after being in a staff position at a studio the logical progression for an engineer is to try to go freelance and uh shelly yakis the guy who told me to become a, a big fish in a small pond uh, that he had just done that. He had been the head engineer at AM Records and had just gone freelance as doing Sting, right? And uh, and, and funny thing, right? Not long before I left Granny's house, Shelly showed up at Granny's house out of the blue. Wow. Turns out he married a gal who had horses in Tahoe and he was visiting her uh, the horses in Tahoe and he came to Granny's house and they. And he has, he has this very recognizable bright blonde hair or might have been gray at the time. And I'm like, 
he comes in and meets Tim and he said, I'm Shelly Yakis. I'm the, and, I'm, and I walk out, I'm going, this is the guy who told me <laughs> to, to come back to Reno. Yeah. We all went to lunch. I'm like, you, Mr. Yakis, are the reason I'm back here doing, doing oh, Granny's so house. Thank you. And, uh, and spoke to him a bit about doing freelance work. And, and um, uh, it wasn't the biggest motivation to get me going, but I, uh, it was part of the, the details that came together where I said, well, I, I think I can give this a go. Right. And um, so scared to freaking death. And I didn't want to leave anyone hanging. So I gave Tim a month's notice, not two weeks. Right. I shot a six-hour tutorial video, you know, this old studio of how to align the tape machine, how the SSL worked, all the stuff, whoever would come in after me. Uh, so I didn't leave anyone hanging. And um, uh, I, uh, uh, I remember the one of the first sessions I did was our old roommate, Joe Gonzalez. Yeah. He had a group called Can Es Mas Macho, uh, named after the skit on Saturday Night Live. And he thought that was the funniest <laughs> thing ever. And we recorded at, at, at Destiny Studios. Okay. With Dan, Dan, Dan Gomez. And that was the first time where I was a visiting guest engineer in a different room. Right. And uh, all freelance. And Dan and I kind of collabed on it. And we did four songs. And I'm like, I like this feeling. It was, yeah. it was, uh, it was very interesting, but I knew I was going to have to find work pretty quickly. And fortunately, a gig at the El Dorado opened up where I actually could do um, uh, live sound uh, there for a, a, a show called Spirit of the Dance, which was this, this takeoff of a, the Riverdance show, the Irish dancers. And... I didn't have a boatload of experience with live sound and I'm, I'm not much of a live sound guy. It doesn't speak to me. I don't like chasing feedback for fun, you know? Right, so absolutely. Yeah. So there's the Todd Rolds, there's the, the Scott Bergstrom's there's so many Matt and you know, there's so many great front of house live mixers here. I was like, go, go to them. I, I'm not going to, I'm not your live guy. Right. Um, but I, I did get some practical experience with, with some great people who ended up working with Blue Man Group and stuff okay. uh, at El Dorado for a year. Um, and in that period of time, I uh, came back to, to Axtracks where I had recorded here and missed Huey Lewis in the news when I was 15. Right. And um, the owner of the studio is the same owner, this, this Dr. Lawrence Davis, who remembered me from when I recorded here when I was 15. And he said, well, you know, you have a good reputation now. Like Eric said, having worked with some of these local acts, I, I finally developed a, a decent reputation after a somewhat shaky start. And um, I, uh, uh, he said, well, if you think you can uh, uh, book it, I'll put some money in giving you a facelift. So based on a handshake in uh, late 98, we started remodeling this studio. Uh, this room was all burlap and uh carpeting on the walls there was one light uh and and the floor was kind of falling apart underneath the weight of the old console which is actually this rack here is eight channels that old console that dan gomez racked up for us as a sidecar and um a, this guy who had been a, an assistant engineer at granny's house named bill Furman was trying to get into an interior design program at the university of arizona he said 
hey, let me design this new studio of yours and so I can use it as a showpiece room to get into the interior design program. I'm like, yeah, okay. So he and I, when I wasn't mixing Spirit of the Dance, we're over here redesigning this whole room. Wow. And we opened January 2000 under the name MRI Sound Lab, which is a word Dr. Davis dreamed up years before for a perfume that someone was developing. Hmm. It's like the word mirage and image kind of squished together, mirage. And the perfume never actually went to market. And he said, yeah, here's, here's this word. And we're like, okay, cool. Because originally when it was called Extracts, he wanted to be the first studio in the phone book. Smart, so, smart. So yeah, a, so it was yeah. A. And there was another studio, I think it was on the Mount Rose Highway, and ADATs were the new, the new thing. So there was like ADAT 24-track studios was the first one in the phone book above Extracts. So we were racking our brains to try to find another A name. <laughs> right. So that was below before ADAT. And that was hard because there's like AAA, you know, so double A studios. <laughs> I was like, oh, these are all dumb. We hate these things. Right. right. And Dr. Davis was like, no, we want an A studio so we can stay the first one in the phone book. And after months of agonizing, you know, I, I was like, well, how about Asylum? That'd be a good place for a studio, Asylum. And it would be close to the front. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> You know, and then he said, well, how about Amirage? And we're like, it doesn't start with A. <laughs> right. Well, he goes, it's this word I came up with years ago for a perfume. I'm like, I, we like it. We like it. If, if you're good with it not being A, we'll do it. And he, so that's how we got the name Amirage. And uh, we opened officially on January 2000, even though we right. had done some recordings with Cranium mm -hmm. and Delusions of Grandeur before we opened. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And the, I mean, the good news is like, who, who gives a shit about phone books anymore? So yeah, <laughs> it's, you're good there. So yeah. That's yeah. limitations, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 And don't, don't start on how terribly out of date my website is. <laughs> website. It's horrible. Who uses websites anymore? Right. <laughs> my website was designed in 2003 and that's where it stays. There you yeah. go. <laughs> it's going to be like one of those, like uh, I've been busy, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who's got time for a website when you're recording all sorts of people, right? <laughs> you know, so so this studio, you end up, you're basically in charge, which is kind of rad, but you're still, I mean, it's 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 kind of what you wanted, not the total freelance thing, but it also gave you the opportunity to do freelancing too. Is that correct? 100% right. So Dr. Davis uh, basically became a partner in this. I'm the studio manager. So I, I have to make sure this place is operational when I'm not engineering it as well. Uh, and for many years, I was the main reason anything was happening in this room. And it's been a, 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 an attempt, a very long time to get, try to get other engineers up to speed to become functional engineers as well and, and bring, bring other clients in. Uh, and it was kind of, I was kind of hogging the room. It was hard for them to get in. And uh, with some very talented people like Alan Griffith and, and, and folks who were with me for ages that never really could get in around my busy schedule. But with, with my recent commitments increasing at, at, uh, at UNR and at, with Whitesnake, I'm, I'm, I'm basically split in thirds now. It's two days a week UNR, two days a week with Whitesnake and two days a week here. And and some late nights like now <laughs> sure, sure, sure. so i had to get some other help in here so the room just didn't collect dust so um 
the ones that came in recently were people who had out been out for a while who already had some chops that brought it in. So right now, uh, Mike Jenkins and Alex Breckenridge are, are the two uh, freelancers that can come in and operate the room as well. They've been trained so they can fly, fly the desk. Uh, so that that's actually been good that there's been some stuff happening here without me, which was a hard thing for me to let go the reins of because yeah. I've been running this room pretty much 20 years. Right. And, and way longer than I was at Granny's house. And um, so trying to, to, to just, you know, trust in someone else to, to, to take care of the room was a hard pill to swallow. And so far, it's going great. These guys so are awesome. do you here's a question I have for you because I'm interested in this. So, like I said, you were the, basically the only engineer there for a long time running the show. Do you listen to these other engineers mixes like is it is it a thing where they're just using your studio or are they part of like the brand where it's like we want to make sure that you're putting that stuff because you're a part of you're like you're using our room like how does that work i i very much try to pull people that have taken all my classes smart so i know they came from a background of stuff that i'm i i'm i i, I put out and uh, they went through a graduated mix test in my classes. There's a, a song from what was, which is the band now Jellybread. They were used to called Pufferbilly. And there's a song that I recorded on the Pufferbilly record, which is a song that they have to mix through a, 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 a standard uh, mixing exercise that, I, that gives me a barometer of what their mixing is like as students. So when they came back to do this additional training to be freelancers here, I, I, I ran them through a, a similar song, with, but a much more complex song with a song by a band called Grayscale. Okay. Um, that was three times as many tracks, far more complex. And they, but they gave me these different versions of these mixes so I could hear what they could do as engineers before I let them loose in the room with clients. Sure. So uh, since giving them the keys to the car. I have not been hearing a lot of their work, actually. I've heard some and given some feedback, but part of it is let them fall on their face. <laughs> yeah, right, right. That was the biggest thing I learned on the first record I, I produced myself, I uh, by myself. I, I tracked an album with a group called Psychobabble, but Bjorn mixed it, the Now Fear This record. And so that went fine, but then I did this group called Barbecued Salad, and the album Old Cornface's Dog Ballet, where I mixed it myself, and I realized that I I inadvertently didn't master it. <laughs> so when the album came out and they burned all these CDs, it it didn't it didn't sound like other records, and that hurt me for a long time. Yeah, uh, it was wasn't until this group called Convicted Innocence uh, showed up and. <laughs> decided to take a chance on old Tom here and uh, <laughs> did this record called Soul Drive and uh, which came out great and then that started people started feeling com uh, comfortable to um, to work with me again so actually that's a question for you Eric how you know after my my my, my unfortunate incident with the uh, barbecue talent album what what gave you guys the confidence to reach out to work with me for on Soul Drive uh from what i remember and i don't know how hazy this is um i believe it was a psychobabble stuff it was a psychobabble record yeah I, i'm pretty yeah. much i'm pretty sure that was the case 
because we, okay. we were buddy buddies with those guys. You know what I mean? And, and I think hearing that was like, all right, cool, because we had done – we weren't having luck recording. We didn't really feel like anything was being captured of how we were. And we did, uh, um, we did something in Carson, but it was like with digital drums, and it was just yeah, happening. Yeah, thought about that. Yeah. And, 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 and it sold well, which is really cool. I mean, we sold out of all of our cassettes, you know, um, which is funny because that sounds old school, but now it's like the new hipster thing to buy cassettes again, which is crazy. Um, and then we were trying – to work with another producer or two. It just didn't work out. And then we we met Mario somehow. Um, and then for me and Mario, he was like, oh, yeah. And we heard that record. Now for like, this. Oh, yeah. I was like, whoa, okay, cool. And then you came to see us play. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it's really funny because it was, it, it was really like you and Bjorn. Because Bjorn was working with the glass statues. Yeah. And exactly. I think we just we just got a better vibe from you, you know what I mean? Which is interesting. Plus the psychobabble stuff, and you know, and then you know, it's interesting because Bjorn to talk about Bjorn real quick. Then he goes on to work with Billy Corgan and Smashing Pumpkins, yeah, which is awesome, huge records. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he did a door right, Magnet, Shania Twain, yeah, great stuff. Oh, great, yeah, great ear, you know, and uh, so that's how we ended up working with you. And then we were, you know, we were doing pretty good in town. And so then people are like, oh, who'd you record with? And and there you go. And then it just kind of yeah. trickled down from there. Because you've been involved with some pretty big local artists that I think a lot of people don't understand. You know, Reno's a place where there's so many great musicians, um, but the scene's kind of tricky. And the scene's been tricky for a long time because we are in a casino town, per se. So it's hard to build, you know, that type of scene when the, the casinos pretty much had the dominance forever in a way. Um but you work with False Silent, and you know False Silent, you know, did a lot of stuff overseas, and you know that was a big record for you. I mean, not in December. For the December two. was huge. December had a video on MTV too. I mean, there's you know there's some definite big things that happened. Um, so do you feel like when you were working in the studio you're in right now, do you feel like the door got opened for you to work at the university because of that? And here's the big cliffhanger, ladies and gentlemen. We're making this interview with Tom Gordon a two-part series because there's so much information to get to, and I want to make sure you guys digest it all. So look for part two next week, and if you're listening to this later, you probably can find part two right now. So it's kind of cool. Um, Tom gave us so much great information, stuffs and stories about Whitesnake, David Lee Ross, Steve Vai, Boys to Men, Dio, um, how to record, what, what the scene is like nowadays, being an engineer in a studio. A lot of great stuff. So hope you enjoyed this episode and look for part two, like I said. And also, if you can, please subscribe to us. We're all over the place, but the Apple reviews and the five stars really help us out the most. I love doing what I'm doing, and I love you guys listening. So give me feedback, too, if you want to. Super appreciate it. Be good to yourselves. Be good to each other. 